the right idea at the right time. The miracles of logistics every day. I just challenged all of their rules. Technology is revolutionizing this industry. Changed our lives. Close your eyes for a second. New York, Hong Kong, Paris. We're more connected. You just never know where the next innovation will come from. Rules are beginning to change. This is Longitudes Radio, a podcast with today's leading experts about the future of technology, global trade, sustainability, and logistics. I'm Brian Hughes. And I'm James Rowe. So Brian, today we're talking with Connie Matisse. She's the CMO and co-founder of East Fork. It's a pottery company that designs, manufactures, and sells durable, and I might add, exceptionally cool-looking ceramic dishware. They're out of Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah, and Connie is like so many entrepreneurs right now, just trying to figure out how to navigate these unprecedented times during the coronavirus pandemic. She's asking questions like, where do we pivot our business next? How do I talk to my own people? And how do I reach customers at a time when so many people are just hunkering down right now? I I really do think, though, James, she has so many insights that can be so useful to small business owners of all stripes right now. Yeah, and one of those uh, lessons that she learned early on and they incorporated into their culture at uh, East Fork is the idea of adaptive tenacity. That's particularly important right now. And you see that in in the way that they started the company on social media and their marketing on social media. East Fork's really a company that grew up on Instagram, and now they've got got 120,000 followers who, in the middle of this coronavirus storm, they're all behind them. Yeah. And part of the reason they have that massive following is they're authentic, they're real, they say what's on their mind. And in this interview, Connie does all those things. Let's get to it. We're living and working in unprecedented times right now. There's not really a blueprint for how you deal with a situation like this. As an entrepreneur and a creative leader, how did you adjust to figure out where East Fork would go next? So we, we're we overthinkers at East Fork. Some of us are worriers. Some of us like to imagine all scenarios before trudging forward. And so in some ways that came as a benefit for us. We started thinking about our contingency responses to COVID-19, I would say, about a month before a lot of other companies our size did. And so that didn't give us any advantage as far as like getting ahead or, or you know, preventing us from having to make really difficult decisions about closing our factory or anything like that. But what it did do was let the reality of it sink in a little bit earlier for us than for others. And so by the time it came for us to really jump into action, we were able to have quick responses while keeping our heads on straight and kind of taking things day by day. We, we, we shut down our factory on March 17th, kind of ahead of any sort of government mandates uh, in North Carolina. We'd been keeping close eye on the situation and uh, knew that it was going to be inevitable for for businesses to have to close. And as a business that takes itself really seriously as a leader in our community, we felt it was necessary to set the tone and make the decision to close ahead of any sort of mandate to encourage other businesses who were able to to do so to do the same. But we also came into it in a pretty strong position. Our CFO is a really has a lot of foresight and um, we've been kind of running our business with crisis in mind since the beginning. Uh, So I had two months operating costs on hand and really thought about how we could navigate this company through this uncharted territory while making sure we didn't have to lay anybody off or put anyone in danger. So that's where we are right now. Our our stores are closed. uh, Fulfillment's closed. 
everything is closed except for we've been able to continue paying 100% of our company at their normal rate and will continue to do so. So Connie, it's really interesting to see on your Instagram site the reaction from your customers. They've um, been overwhelmingly supportive. Uh, I saw in reaction to some of the pre-ordering for the summer that you're doing uh, reactions like, you know, I'm excited about my order. I'm Mm -hmm. doing a quote here, uh, but perfectly content waiting as long as needed for them. So it looks like they've got a lot of uh, patience. You've got a lot of trust in the company and and relationship with your customers. So do you think that's something unique to East Fork that maybe other companies don't have? And why do you guys have that? Yeah. So um, to, to put it out there really plainly, March was really bad for business for a, lot of, for a lot of companies for obvious reasons. Somehow it was our highest grossing month in company history by 30%. So it was wow. 30% higher grossing than November, which is always awesome. you know, historically our biggest month. And we got lucky because we were sitting on a pile of seconds inventory that we'd planned to sell this spring very differently. We were, we were planning on going on a big old West Coast tour and having these parties and um, at Counterculture Coffee and and engaging people face-to-face, lots of hugging and touching. Obviously, that didn't happen. But we had that inventory and we were really fast to mobilize. And yeah, our community came up to support in a big, big way. And I think the reason they did so was because we have been fostering that community and nurturing that community all the time, not just in moments where we need them. We don't just call upon our community to save us or to help us out when when we're in a need. We've we have taken that really seriously since day one. And people want to spend money where where they can trust that it's going to be put to good use. And I think we've gained a lot of trust with our community. We've seen that with some local uh, businesses here and in, in where I live. And uh, everybody's kind of pitching in, supporting where they can. Do you have relationships with with other small businesses around there that you, you either know or work with? Asheville's in a tough spot right now. Uh, you know, obviously it's a, a huge tourist destination. Uh, it's tourism is after after Mission Hospital. You know, the tourism industry is the biggest industry in in Asheville, and people are really hurting. You know, hotels are empty, restaurants had to close. We have friends who own restaurants who had to lay off all of their employees and help them file for unemployment. I think that's the state of not just Asheville, but but most cities our size across the country. And I think a lot of companies also have been running their businesses week by week and it, this is a, a moment when like financial health and financial security is it's it's showing how important it is um, and a lot of companies haven't been able to for all sorts of reasons haven't been able to kind of accumulate that safety net in the way that that we were able to I wonder if you might talk about how you see the role of business in helping any community regardless of where it is East Fork did not get started to fill a hole in a market or to make a lot of money. I can tell you with certainty that if you want to put a lot of money in your bank account, you should not start a ceramics manufacturing company from the ground up because it's extremely capitally intensive and it's a a long time to see any returns. And so we started this business because we wanted to provide uh, good paying jobs with benefits to, to our Asheville community where the people who have been born and raised in Asheville have often gone without the benefit of the tourism industry. And so there's a big wage gap in Asheville. And and we thought that it would be a good opportunity for us to build a company that could support, that could give jobs to, to people who needed them. So yeah, building a financially secure business and making sure that we were making decisions with investment and how we grew uh, to, to 
remain a secure, financially secure business has been important to us because it allows us to offer jobs uh, that are secure. Yeah, what well, it's interesting, Connie. I'm hearing a lot of a through line of all of these actions start with people first, right? And I'm wondering, as you guys were calculating how you were going to take your first step after the coronavirus outbreak, what was your message to your own people when you were outlining how you're going to move forward? We run our business extremely transparently. I think if you ask anyone at East Fork if they feel like they have a good sense of what's happening with leadership, people would probably say we give them way more information that they than they can even handle. And we try to make sure that we give information in a way that's digestible and appropriate. But we also we keep everyone really informed of the decisions that we're making in you know in the conference rooms. And so we started talking about the potential effects of COVID nineteen early on, and we we were letting people know, hey, this is happening. It's happening in these places. It's very likely that it's going to happen in in Asheville and Buncombe County, and and we want to let you know that we're doing everything we can to make sure that you're protected, and we're going to keep you posted. And so every day, our CFO John sends a daily email updating people on the the status of what's happening in Buncombe County, providing resources for anything from legal sessions that are being offered for free for artists or emergency relief funds for people to access, and then we also give people. Uh, a look into how how the three of us as a founding team are thinking about these conversations in the short and the long term. So the day that we got up and announced to everybody that we were going to be closing the factory, uh, it was met with a lot of gratitude because people were aware of just the what that Im- the impact of that decision. It's It's been really fun to try to foster a sense of community virtually. And I think we've done a really good job of it. Every day we, we send around, I send around a, a little writing prompt to the whole staff to get to know each other better. And the stories that have emerged from that are just, I mean, I just like sit there weeping at the end of the night, listening to everybody's stories about where they grew up and their parents and the books they like to read and things that I never would have known about had we not been forced into this weird situation. I send a prompt every single morning. So yesterday's was just who is your high school celebrity crush? And people sent around there, you know, the lots of uh, Jared Leto's and things like that. Or, or another one was tell us about a time you felt connected to nature. And I think we had 43 responses from the team with beautiful essays on moments that they they felt content and at peace with nature. So yeah, it, it's been fun to connect with everybody virtually. I, I mean, I think we might need to implement some of that on our team, James. It uh, might alleviate some of the, <laughs> the stress. I, I was going to say, it doesn't sound like a, a, a true corporate environment. And I'm just kind of interested in the uh, that authenticity kind of vibe, that genuine mm-hmm. feel that you all have there. Where did it come from? Well, when we started this company, it was just, you know, the three of us, me and John and Alex, and we were just friends who were who wanted to contribute our own skills to build something together. And we always had a lot of respect for the skills that other people brought to the table. We never really tried to, you know, we all kind of stayed in our lane a little bit. We identified what we were good at and then we we did those things. And so the three of us together were a little micro ecosystem for how we would potentially want to work together as we got bigger. And so culture, building a, a culture of honest communication and accountability and and real compassion has been essential to East Fork from the start. We grew a lot in, you know, in two years, we went from being a company of 12 people to a company of 80 people. And that we, we had some serious roadblocks or, or bumps in that road. But yeah, it's we've been fostering that intentional community since since day one. Connie, I wonder, uh, you mentioned some roadblocks when you first got started. What were some of the biggest ones you had to get past? None of us 
came from a, a business background. The three of us founders had no experience running a business and we certainly had no experience managing big teams. And when we first started out, it was mostly just like hiring friends or friends of friends. And we knew pretty quickly that if we did that, we weren't going to be able to build the truly inclusive and equitable sort of culture that we wanted to eventually become. And so we started when we moved into the factory and overhauled our hiring practices, uh, we were really brought face to face by some of the economic disparities and cultural disparities that exist in Asheville. There was just a lot of navigating how to speak to each other honestly and how to how to share expectations and share feelings in a way that that allowed people to be heard, but also kept professional boundaries. There was a lot of that of just how do we how do we show up to work with each other uh, when we're all really different? I love that you brought up that cultural aspect. I'm curious, when you're looking for the right, quote, fit for East Fork, is it something that you know when you see it or is it more trial and error? When when we first moved into the factory, we had had plans, big a lot of plans to do that mission, vision, and values work that so many companies either neglect to do or or kind of fumble through early on. And, and we kept putting it on the back burner because it didn't seem essential until Alex, or my husband and Eastworks CEO, finally was like, we can't keep putting this off. This is important. We need to sit down and, and really lay out what what our mission is. We have to put it in writing. We have to identify those values and we have to share it with the team. And so we finally did that. And it when we were able to sit down with the team that we'd brought to the to the factory and say, hey, this is why we're here. This is how we're going to work together. And this is where we're going. It was it was wild, the shift in the, the weeks that followed from people. Because before we were working in this factory, we were a little, you know, kind of craft hobby, not hobby potter, a craft pottery in, in Madison County, North Carolina, with a really small team of craftspeople making work at a completely different scale, at a completely different pace. And so when we all of a sudden brought those people over to the factory and said, okay, we're going to build a factory and we're going to grow 200% a year and we're going to do this, this and that, people were just like, but but why? And by not telling them why, that that caused a lot of friction. And people were like, well, I, I don't want to do this thing anymore. Like, I this isn't what I signed up for. And so when we finally were able to, to really lay out what the vision for East Fork was, the people who'd been with us since the start just, I mean, they just turned right around and were able to to help us to, to just totally jump on board and and help us carry out that mission. When you're talking about those values and going through the mission statement and whatnot, um, I heard you mention that on one of your Instagram posts is uh, how important those values are to the company. Could you tell us a little bit about what those are? Yeah, sure. So the values that we've identified at East Fork are compassion, equity, accountability, adaptive tenacity and sincerity. And when someone started talking about how you use values in business, uh, I it was initially kind of just uh, turned off by the idea. Just kind because of like I, a corporate term. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, We're not we familiar like with those at all. No. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I'm sure. Um, you know, you see them like over the bathroom or whatever, and it's just like, what is what is the point of that? It just seems so silly. But when we landed on those and we really started talking about what it would mean to use those to make business decisions, and then we started practic- practicing it and asking our, our teammates to actually use those values to make decisions and to navigate conversations with teammates, it was wild how people ran with it. And I heard people, I would hear people from across the office being like, well, in, you know, using the East Fork value of accountability, I feel like we need to do this, this and that. Or um, if a vendor came along and we were trying to figure out if we should work with them, you know, different members of our leadership team would be like, well, let's give them a quick values check. Like, are they treating their people compassionately? Like, what are their 
do they have equitable hiring practices? Like all these big people really started to use them. And so they've been, they've just been huge in, in helping us make decisions of who to work with and what issues to stand for and where to go to bat for our employees. You just, you can't run a business that is worth a lick of anything in the 21st century without having clearly defined values. And I would, but I would imagine, especially now you brought up adaptive tenacity. I would kind yeah. of think yeah. in terms of the <laughs> COVID-19 world, there's not really any more valuable tool for businesses of any size than that. Our business has always been tenacious and very adaptive. Our, our big goal for this year was to lay out this beautiful strategy that had, there were so many plans and we had everything really thought out and we've had to throw that plan completely out the window and, and do it from scratch. But we've, we're all so used to working in that manner of having to pivot really quickly that it it came really naturally to us. No, no one on our team has comes from a corporate background in, in the way that like we don't have any like a you know big grown up person who's like comes from like a a completely different environment like leading the ship or anything. We're all kind of just kids figuring it out, and I think that it's benefited us because no one has this preconceived notion of how business is supposed to be done. So it's really let us think outside the box. Yeah. You know, one of those uh, values you mentioned, the sincerity part, we were talking about it through the lens of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going through your feed on Instagram and you, you posted a video last week where it was just straight up. It was just uh, unedited. Uh, even the camera was kind of tilted down, so I didn't quite see your eyes there. But it was like super real. You got a lot yeah. of comments on your sweatshirt too, by the way. Uh, but it was it was super authentic. You kind of laid out the truth. So let's take a listen. Good morning. Um, our spring and summer collection is going to be available for pre-order at 12 p.m. Eastern time. We have not yet made these pots. We are not currently working at the factory or the fulfillment center or our stores. Um, so all these pots will be made to order after we're all back to work, after this global pandemic has ended. The global pandemic will end just as soon as um, America, um, as the American people hold ourselves personally accountable and we all stay home and keep our communities safe if possible. Um, so let's all do that and then we'll be all, we'll be able to get back to work in the factory and making these pots um, as quickly as we can. So available for pre-order, you're going to be waiting on them for a long time. So please do not order unless you feel comfortable with that. And, um, thank you so much for your support at this time. And thank you also for staying home, um, as much as you possibly can just stay home. You've been talking to your customers throughout the whole crisis. What kind of feedback are you getting on that? And uh, you know, what do you think it means to the employees who kind of see that at East Fork and then also the customers? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it's interesting that the word authentic, I, I do believe that um, it's been so co-opted, you know, by different brands in the past decade who want to who want to build authenticity or, or you know, I incorporate authenticity into their brand. And if you're starting from that angle, you're starting on the wrong foot because anytime you try to be authentic, you're going to fail. A lot of people ask me, or when they when they see that the value of sincerity, they confuse it with just kind of being exactly who you are, or like saying whatever comes to your, your mind. I don't confuse sincerity with saying whatever comes to your mind because a lot of people, I have a lot of thoughts that should only live in my brain and they should be, they should leave my mouth in some edited fashion. Brian has that uh, situation (laughs) as well. I was was about to go, wow, that feels uh, strangely relatable. Yeah. Um, yes, I don't think you should do that, but I do think that vulnerability is a characteristic that a lot more businesses should be adopting both for their customers and toward their employees. So while our, our, you know, our employees have 
trust us because we share with them. We tell them what's going on in the business. We share with them things that are both positives and negatives. We talk about different issues that we're struggling with. If we don't have an answer for it, we don't say, hey, we're the bosses. So here's the answer to all your questions. We say, you know, I don't, I don't really know. Like, here's how we're, we're talking about that, but we don't really have a clear answer for you yet, but we're going to make sure that we tell you the second we do, and we're going to gather your input to make sure that we're using you know, your feedback and making decisions. It's just like basic human relationship skills. Like, How would you want to be treated by a brother or a friend? It's too hard to tell right now, but we're kind of touching on this is you know, what happens in the aftermath of this, the philosophy changes, that kind of thing. But are there anything things like tactical maybe that you all are thinking about or that you could share with other small business owners for post-pandemic time? You know, you always see people fundraising or giving, doing auctions or in, in times of crisis, like when a, a new law is passed and everyone rallies around one particular issue and all fundraisers for that or whatever, but there's no consistency. And I think businesses really need to start kind of identifying what are the the main issues that they want to help alleviate and, and have some consistency and show up for them, not just in the really hard times or the low moments, but like consistently be supporting their work throughout the year. I've always thought it's really important to focus locally here in Western North Carolina, because we can have a pretty wide impact if we devote our resources to to this kind of small community. And if, if all businesses are doing that, like it would just... It, it's, it would be a huge shift. And then also like you don't have to think about money as being the only resource. A lot of businesses have resources that they can offer that might seem a little bit out of the box. Um, we have a, a community kitchen here at East Fork where we make team lunches. And something that I really want to do when we get back up and running is offer that kitchen space to small businesses, small catering businesses. A lot of people have food businesses and they have to use like a certified kitchen to, to run it. And so what would it look like if in off hours, we allowed people to come in and for free use our kitchen to support their their food business. It doesn't have to be just like writing a check at the end of the year or something. So Connie, you know, you guys have been around since 2010 and uh, you've built uh, East Fork up from the ground and really done that online through the social platforms, I believe. Mm -hmm. So like Instagram, you've got about 120,000 followers. How did that start? Let me go way back. My husband, Alex, he moved to North Carolina uh, because he was interested in clay and he dropped out of college after a year and a half to become a full-time apprentice with two master potters here in, in North Carolina. Bought a piece of property out in Madison County. I met him right after he bought that property and together we built a big wood burning kiln and a workshop. I was not a potter. I worked in the restaurant industry, but I helped him mix a lot of glaze and wad a lot of pots and cut a lot of wood. And so for a few years, we operated just like that. We were making very traditional kind of vernacular North Carolina folk pottery and selling it at craft fairs and having big kilns sales. So it did start off online of kind of, but from the beginning, we're really good at throwing big parties and gathering lots of people together in the form of kiln sales. Uh, a kiln sale, for those who don't know, it's a traditional way of selling pottery in the Southeast where you open up the kiln, so to speak, and everybody comes out and purchases the pots kind of fresh from the kiln. And so we'd have big barbecues. I'd make food for 200 people and we'd have, you know, we'd have people showing up from all over the Southeastern region to buy pots. I tried really hard to not be in the family business. I had no intention of like being a, a potter's wife. And but I also realized that like this guy had a good thing going for him and if I ha- if I used my skills a little bit to to help him out, we could potentially do something pretty cool. And so I just started documenting things and writing in the newsletters and all that and it just kind of grew from there. I think the the reason why our Instagram ended up 
catching on as quickly as it did is because it it wasn't like a, a brand Instagram where it just like emerged from nowhere, perfectly polished. It really evolved from the ground up. And it was just me following around my boyfriend and my friends while they made pots. And I mean, we used to make some really raunchy, weird videos that probably if I reposted them now, people would freak out. It was it was just silly and fun. And I wasn't trying to, I didn't have an emerging brand strategy or anything. It just, it just happened. Yeah. And we kind of see that with, uh, I was checking out there, you had a three-part video series on Instagram uh, with your daughter. Oh, Lucia. Lucia. Yeah. Yeah. Lucia does my dishes. Yeah. (laughs) Is that kind of what you're talking about? Is you just like, you know, blending your personality, your life and things like that with the business? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like we have an incredible creative team here of a photographer, Whitney Ott. She makes beautiful, beautiful photographs. And every once in a while, one of her photos will get a ridiculous number of likes. But then the next day, an iPhone photo that I take of my kid with spaghetti sauce on her face will get just as many. So people really come for, for both reasons. And yeah, I think I think it's pretty different. I've I've let a lot of people into our lives in a way that's pretty intimate and raw. And so people know my kids' names and obviously I have to I I stay up a lot at night thinking about how much I should reveal from of my family life and just as far as like what feels emotionally appropriate for me and my family. But I also know that it brings it, it's it's really effective marketing, James, let me tell you. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It it's uh yeah, we joke about which kid has the the best ROI. <laughs> <laughs> Since you're an expert, I've got to ask you this. I have been told that I'm bad at Instagram. And the, the reason <laughs> is people say you just post the same pictures of your kids smiling at the camera. Is This isn't an effective strategy. Am I doing something wrong? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I don't know. <laughs> there, there are companies. I mean, I know friends who who post like the same exact overhead shot of like a sourdough, a bread, of, a loaf of sourdough bread, and they do really well. So there is some element of consistency in Instagram that that uh, could lead you to be successful one day, um, <laughs> Brian. But uh, one day far away. It sounds like you're being charitable, and that I, I'm essentially the person <laughs> taking the boring picture of the the sourdough over and over again. <laughs> So how did it grow? Like, you know, to get to 120,000, was that like overnight? Did it just slowly grow? No. So it was pretty, it was slower growth, but uh, we had kind of random peaks and valleys. You know, the in- Instagram is so weird. The algorithm's always changing. There were companies that got on there early on and, and kind of gained momentum that saw like a lot of followers starting to follow before. We had we did a handful of giveaways with some aligned brands that really saw a good pop in followers. We've had amazing press coverage over the last two years. We brought our, our PR in-house this year or last year. And the, the woman who runs our, our PR, Erin Holly, does an amazing job of, of getting the word out. And so we'll get media coverage that'll bring some followers. But yeah, it's a lot of sharing. I have one picture of myself breastfeeding my, my littlest one and eating a donut that's gotten reposted like 750 times on other people's feeds. And yeah, it just comes from all around. Not all businesses are are built for Instagram. There, it's. I think a lot of people try to push it a little bit too hard, or you're like, they always feel like, or the, this advice of like, post something every single day. Like even that advice. Right now, I see companies who are trying to sell their products, and every day they get up there, like trying to say, like, well, look at this thing that we have, and like this thing's still still beautiful. Like you should buy it. And there's just so much fatigue. And so I don't. I, 
I think Instagram is having like a, a lot of people are experiencing social media fatigue. So you really have to know how much your customers actually want to be hearing from you. And if you don't have something new or interesting to say, then just don't say anything. And that's okay. It's okay to be silent a little bit. I think that's what I would tell people on Instagram right now. <laughs> what about, you know, for other small businesses who are, who are used to more traditional marketing strategies, what are some of the tips that you could share with them? As far as social media goes? Or, yeah, yeah, social media, you know, just marketing online, really. Yeah. Oh, geez. I mean, I think I go, going back to the sincerity thing, you have to be really in tune with your audience. You have to be able to share honestly about things that are happening in your own world, your own business world, thoughts that you're having, but you have to do so with very clear awareness about who you're speaking to and what your words might elicit in somebody else. I think it's really hard to internet market these days. And I, I think that you have to really think about whether it's a skill that you have or want to foster because not everybody should go out there and start blasting on social media. I think you can do a lot of damage if you do it wrong. And that's, I see a lot of people who try to be vulnerable on Instagram, but they're, they're thinking more about how their own feelings and not as much about how those feelings are going to land when they hit someone else. So yeah, I think my, my advice would really be to be consider your audience. It's still marketing. You're not just, it's not a live journal. So Connie, you guys, I, I'm curious, you guys are at the, James mentioned at the 10 year mark, and I think it's a, a call me a sentimental or basic or whatever, but it's a good point for reflection. Yeah. How do you, how do you think the next 10 years look different for eSport compared to the first 10? Oh, geez. If you'd asked me that six weeks ago, I would have, I had a beautiful answer for you, <laughs> yeah. uh, Brian. Well, maybe, I, um, maybe you can I give mean, us uh, the coronavirus answer and then oh, geez, the, I, back the, to the new normal answer. The coronavirus answer, you know, this is all new for us now. I think that we're, we're radically reimagining the company that we're going to be on the other side of this. I'll give you the, the answer that I would have answered first because kind of shows you where we thought we were going, but we thought that we were on our way to becoming the, the largest manufacturer of ceramics in the US. That's that that would probably be like the 15-year goal. And that would have looked like a big campus uh, where we made the line that we're making now, potentially introducing cheaper lines, more automated lines that were more accessible, being completely carbon neutral, building out a huge R&D department, working with manufacturers potentially in other countries to help them design lines and kind of overhaul manufacturing processes to be more environmentally sustainable. I mean, we these we had lots of things that we thought we were going to do in 15 years. And now with with this pandemic putting a wrench in things, we're taking it day by day and week by week and going back to those values and thinking about the the company that we want to build and all I can say for sure is that we want to in 10 years have a company that that's trusted by the community that can can reliably say or can confidently say that they've made the ethically right decision when they had to that's done right by its employees and makes a product that people can really connect with. That's all I'm hoping for, for Eastwork. It kind of sounds like you're, you're in a spot where you have to keep dreaming for, for the future that you want, but you have to rely on being able to be adaptive in this environment and kind of almost have like two visions yeah. right now. Yeah. I think we do have to, I think that we're still, you know, we're talking to a couple of different manufacturers to uh, kind of breathe, breathe new life into that industry in a way that was a little bit more in tune with modern aesthetics and more in tune with cultural need and better stewards of the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, I think that East Fork is, is kind of a, an experiment for what it, what does manufacturing, what does ethical manufacturing look like? What does it look like to build a sustainable, a financially sustainable business while also doing right by people who work for you and with you? 
so that's that's the I don't know what that's going to look like now in 15 years, but that's that's what we're going to keep doing. I don't have a business of my own, but what I'm struggling, to be honest with you, with unplugging. Like I'm kind of forgetting uh-huh. what day it is, when I start, when I finish. I, I think I have a computer screen ingrained in my eyeballs. Yeah. How I mean, are, how are you able to step away from it right now? I would imagine that challenge would be even greater for someone trying to run a business. Yeah. I mean, Brian, it's a huge challenge for me. I work with a, a business coach named Desiree Attaway. She's amazing. And I've I've learned a lot from her about how... I, I'm one of those people who just goes, goes, goes. I work really hard. I learned it from my mother. She learned it from her mother. You know, My grandmother worked in, a, in the Keebler cookie factory until the day that they told her she had to go home. Mexican immigrant just like did not take a day off ever. And even when she was off, she was making food for the whole neighborhood and taking care of children. And my mom's the same way. She works at the, the DA's office in Los Angeles. She's, she just does not slow down. And I've seen the effect that that's had on her. And I know that that's where I'm heading if I don't do something about it. So I kind of had to be yelled at by a business coach that I was paying money to, to really listen to the fact that the the less I care for myself and the less that I attend to my needs, the harder of a time I'm going to have helping other people. And I'm, I'm starting to see that. I mean, the, the last few weeks I've been able to sleep in with my kids and, you know, snuggle them and and take some time to eat lunch and make elaborate dinners. And it's been my own mental health is, has really benefited from this kind of forced halt in production. And my, my adre- I feel like I'm having a total adrenal overhaul right now. Well, Connie, in the interest of helping slow you down right now, we'd like to thank you for joining us today on Longitudes Radio. Thank you both so much. Appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. And yeah. good luck. Yeah. Sleep in. Go to bed early. <laughs> I love it. And we're going to close giving Connie's husband and Eastworks CEO and co-founder Alex Matisse the final word. He has a message that speaks to these trying times we're living through right now. Yeah, so what we're about to play for you feels like the words adaptive tenacity in action. Whenever I hear this clip, Brian, I find myself replacing the word art with the word life. I think that's a funny illusion that art is joy because it's not always joy. And I think a lot of good art comes from struggle. And there's good days and there's bad days. If you like what you heard today, check us out and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can also read our blog at ups.com backslash longitudes, where we post new content every weekday. 